Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features a conversation with Jackie Carms, White House editor for the Los Angeles Times. She discussed the evolution of conservative media, its relationship with the Republican Party, and the challenges of covering the White House during a conversation with Shorenstein Center director, Nick O'Mealy. Folks, welcome to the Shorenstein Center Speaker Series. My name is Nico Mealy. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center. It is my pleasure to welcome Jackie Combs back to the Shorenstein Center. She is the White House editor for the Los Angeles Times Washington Bureau. She was previously a national correspondent for the New York Times, covering politics and policy. Prior to that, she worked at the Wall Street Journal for 18 years, where she covered Congress elections and the Clinton and Bush administrations, often focused on fiscal policy. She was a fellow here in the spring of 2015, and I'm going to just read to you the last line of her fellows paper. I leave wiser for my time at Harvard, of course, but still puzzled as to how anyone could call the period that includes February to April a spring semester. (laughs) And if any of you were here in the winter of 2015, you remember nine feet of snow that didn't Not exactly spring-like weather. Her paper when she was here called They Don't Give a Damn About Governing, Conservative Media's Influence on the Republican Party, is without a doubt one of our most popular papers of all time. It really is an exceptional read. I recommend it to all of you. In many ways, it completely anticipates the current moment. And I'm going to start there by asking Jackie, in the in the paper, you describe this dynamic between uh, between conservative media and Republican politicians where uh, – um, given the influence and reach and audience of conservative media, uh, that Republican uh, elected officials overpromise to those audiences and then find themselves unable to deliver and then get wrapped up in a site where their audiences get angry they can't deliver and it just intensifies. So talk to us about that. That seems like an excellent way to understand a lot of what's happening right now. Absolutely. First, thank you very much for having me back here. I absolutely loved it here. Um, that I've said to people, um, and especially people who say something to me about that are down about Donald Trump being at the head of government now and governing with a Republican-controlled Congress so that you have all Republican control ostensibly in Washington. And I say to them that there is a silver lining in this as far as I'm concerned, which gets exactly to your point, which is they have exposed after nine months the fact that they have been overpromising for over seven years and that the things they were promising were always unachievable, but they were thrown out there as red meat, um, encouraged by conservative media, and um, now we've seen and included first and foremost repealing Obamacare, defunding Planned Parenthood, balancing the budget while also having big tax cuts, uh, and repealing on day one the orders that uh, President Obama for the um, deferred action on childhood arrivals, the DACA uh, protections from deportation for um, young people brought here uh, to this country as children. None of those things have been done, nor I would say would they be done. And and I I won't just 
I'm wrong about many things in the course of my career, but I actually had a, sh a fellowship in February at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, and and uh, it was entitled, my weeks there were entitled Policy in the Trump Era, and we covered taxes and trade and um, health care. And I think everyone came away from those forums and panels with our, we, pr we pretty much predicted, myself and my panelists who were from both ends of the spectrum or both parties, that, that these things were not going to happen, chief of all repeal of Obamacare. And we tried to explain why. But, th but this gets to the overpromising. They have, they have willfully overpromised for seven years to feed this beast. Um, and I don't know if they just never thought that they'd be called upon to have to do it and you know control both the presidency and Congress, or if they just, I, I tend to think what they thought is they're just thinking short term. Politics and stock markets, stock investors think short term. It's only the immediate win, not the long, not the long haul. What, uh, what do you, how do you see this dynamic changing? This dynamic of the conservative media, which is fueled by outrage, which generates audiences and advertising dollars, which in turn shapes the Republican Party and moves them, moves Republican leaders consistently to the right? Well, to use a loaded word, I think it's only going to get worse. And I say worse because at bottom, I think these trends, these forces are bad for democracy. What we have, and, and just as with mainstream media, when Trump talks about it, conservative media is now a more it was when I wrote about it. It is even more now. It's um, it's broader than just you, you, you know. If I'm painting with a broad brush here in a negative way, there are good conservative media outlets, and um, including on you know the the uh, one most people think of most, Fox News. There are good features and good people at Fox News. They just aren't on Fox and Friends, which is what our president mostly watches, but. It's just my little aside. Um, so I think it's, you know, this has all come about because it's, it's the age of the Internet. It's the expansion of um, these media forces because you don't have to have all the wealth and, and resources that it used to be required or are still required for starting and maintaining a newspaper or a television station. And um, it's why, you know, we think so much of conservative media, we think of talk radio, but that is sort of declining, except not insignificantly in rural areas where much of Trump's base is. Um, but it's more now on the Internet. And these are, there are forces. I didn't even know until I started my paper two years ago what Breitbart was. Now everybody knows what Breitbart is. Breitbart was and is in the inner circle of the president of the United States. Um, so it's, I just think this is a force that's only going to continue to uh, worsen, which is that people are going to sources of information that validate the biases they already have, not for information, but for validation. And that is where I come back full circle to saying, well, I think it's a threat to democracy. In your covering of, uh, of Washington and the Congress, you have, um, you know, you have Mitch McConnell, who, uh, when when Barack Obama was elected president, said he was going to thwart the president's agenda at every turn. 
Make him a one-term president. Make him a one-term president. That was Mitch McConnell's goal. And then uh, now you have uh, Steve Bannon leaves the White House and announces he's going to war against Mitch McConnell inside the Republican Party. You know, to what extent do your sources on Capitol Hill and the Republican Party, to what extent are they aware of the of the way they've allowed this, even encouraged this dynamic to develop? They are aware um, because, as I said in the paper, when I when I the topic of my paper came about from a luncheon discussion with Trent Lott, the former Senate Republican uh, Senate Majority Leader of Mississippi, when he was despairing of his party's increasingly rightward drift and complaining that conservative media was a big part of it. So it came to me um, in that way. And I, uh, but I say, in the, so, so I, come, I came to the Shorenstein Center, and at that point I'm a reporter in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. And I'm thinking, Who's going to read a paper or take seriously a paper written by a reporter for the New York Times that's going to be critical of Republicans and conservative media? So, you know, I didn't want to be dismissed out of hand, so I decided at the outset to only mostly interview Republicans, which is what I did except for a few academics. There's one Democrat I quote and only one Democrat I interviewed who, um, David Price, congressman from North Carolina, who happens to also be a political scientist and I think an all-around good and smart and thoughtful guy. Um, so anyway, I, what I say in my paper is I was surprised by how many of the Republicans I interviewed were A, willing to be interviewed, B, talk on the record, not all of them did, but a lot, and, and to fess up to this feeling of that they were, as one, one put it, creating a monster. You know, they had this tiger by the tail that was turning and devouring them. And I mean, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but every time someone suggests in my presence that Trump is an aberration or some kind of a surprise, I say, no, I mean, he is the direct result of forces that were underway for two conclusion. decades. A natural conclusion. Yeah. A natural, or not even conclusion, a natural waypoint. Right. You mentioned term. Bannon and what Bannon's doing now to find um, opponents for Republican candidates. He was doing that three, four, five years ago, he was doing it from Breitbart. At the time that Donald Trump brought him into his campaign last summer, it was only last summer, I mean, the summer before last, um, he was fresh off an effort at Breitbart to foment a leadership challenge to um, Paul Ryan. And Donald Trump and I, you know, so this was so unheard of at the time that a the nominee of the party would bring into his campaign someone who was from his perch in conservative media trying to unseat the Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives. But that's where we are. Char Charlie Sykes is, was a noted uh, uh, conservative talk show radio host in Wisconsin who um, just published a book how the right lost its mind. And, you know, I don't think anyone would say that Charlie Sykes is uh, liberal or even mainstream, per se. And no. yet um, he's come out pretty hard on uh, against what he regards as kind of the way conservative media and the conservative movement has abandoned some of its core principles. Mm -hmm. And yet even in doing so, he seems ignored. 
uh, by that side. He seems like yeah. here is a leader in the in conservative media who is trying to change the direction of it in a way that's consistent with his principles, right. the principles he's long espoused, and is being ignored. So what do you make of that dynamic? Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say he's being ignored, because I think a lot of people in this room probably know the name Charlie Sykes, for instance, and didn't two years ago. I only learned about him when I was here doing my research. Actually, I'd read about him, and I recommend, if anybody's interested, uh, before when Charlie Sykes was one of the conservative media sort of universe and was part of the... He, he not only is come, trying to stand up with his principles now, he is sort of doing mea culpas about his role in this dynamic about um, you know creating this monster, creating an audience of people who have little respect for facts, just want to talk about opinion and, and in a way that validates their opinion. Charlie Sykes, there was a good article uh, featuring him in by some uh, journalist I'm really, uh, I really like a lot, Alec McGill McGillis. And he, I don't know if it was in Atlantic or the National Journal, but it, he used, his focus was on Charlie Sykes and another Milwaukee-based conservative talk show host. And it was really critical. In fact, it was, it was critical of them uh, implicitly, but it was also cause Charlie Sykes to sort of see himself as, you know, in a way that now he sort of had a, this change of heart or to see that he was contributing to these forces that were bad for conservatism and the country more broadly. Anyway, so I thought about doing Charlie Sykes when I was here. This was actually before he'd had his, his um, change of heart because that really came about in the, during the presidential campaign year. Uh, and I ended up going with Steve Dace, a guy in, um, based, based in Des Moines. Um, so I've watched Sykes for the last, I watched him closely. I watched him while I was here. Um, but this thing, I think it is, you see that. And when we talk, again, not to paint conservative media with a broad brush, is there are a lot of people in conservative media, Dace is another one, who, like Sykes, are not fans of Trump because they do recognize. Conservative media is not monolithic. And it's, it's, it's shown... 2012, 2016, 2008, they never have been able to form around one single presidential candidate in the Republican Party. It's not even a question of Democrats, of course. But um, So there is a difference of opinion. And in Trump, Trump has really split the ranks uh, for the very reason you get at, which is how you, know, uh, how you hew to the principles of the party or you just play to the populism. In your paper, you talk about uh, uh, Stephen Colbert had kind of when he was his when he was had the Colbert rapport was fond of the word truthiness, right. right? To describe something he felt was true, kind of regardless of whether or not it was true, right? Uh, how do you uh, you describe in the paper uh, kind of a more detailed understanding of that epistemic closure? Yeah, I love that. I came across that. Um in my research, it's the worst phrase in the world, right? Epistemic closure. I think I wrote in the paper something like uh, it was, it's, it's by, um, uh, I have made a note, Julian Sanchez at the Cato Institute. And he wrote this in 2010, which is, you know, again, an indication of how long these forces have been recognized as a dangerous thing on the right. And he provoked in 2010 a really big um, 
debate on the right about this. And I first saw a reference to it in the New York Times. Uh, I think we wrote about it in 2011 or so. Maybe it was late 2010. Anyway, so he came up with this phrase, which is like, well, like I wrote, is just designed to have it not catch on, which it, of course, did not. Um, but truthiness, it did. <laughs> and they mean sort of the same thing. But um, I'm going to read you what... Uh, Julian Sanchez, that this gets at this idea. The idea of epistemic closure, in case it sh it's not obvious, which it wasn't to me, is that there's been this news loop, this new, well, quote-unquote quote news, a information loop that conservatives have, have closed themselves in that doesn't allow for outside information or, even, or facts to intrude. And if facts do intrude, it's generally they can be dismissed by saying, oh, that was in the New York Times. So, of course, it's not true. But Julian wrote in 2010, like I say, that this expansion had created a um, expansion and success of conservative media had created a closed information circle harmful to conservatism. He says, quote, reality is defined by a multimedia array of interconnected and cross-promoting conservative blogs, radio programs, magazines, and of course, Fox News. Whatever conflicts with that reality can be dismissed out of hand because it comes from the liberal media and is therefore ipso facto not to be trusted. The result, Sanchez said in a subsequent piece as this debate went on with other conservatives, um, Conservative media, quote, had become worryingly untethered from reality as the impetus to satisfy the demand for red meat overtakes any motivation to report accurately. And that was seven years ago. So. And that's part of the dilemma of the Republicans, and arguably a pretty conservative part of the Republican Party controls uh, all three branches of the government at this point. And, uh, and yet the, a, a primary voice, a primary motivation in that political dynamic the conservative media exists frequently outside of, or uh, not not always, but frequently untethered from this reality. What? How does that? I just I just can't figure out how Republicans on Capitol Hill, Republicans in leadership, are going to navigate this. Well, clearly they're not, not very well. Um, and you know, you take something as basic to Republican ideology and doctrine as tax cuts. First of all, I mean, it's, I'm not going out on a limb to say there will be, they talk tax reform, there will be no tax reform. They cannot do it. There will be tax cuts at some point. It won't be, but even that won't be easy because it's going to come at the expense of another promise they've always made, which is fiscal responsibility and balanced budgets. Um, they've already signaled that. But, you know, then you're going to have the people like Corker, who have served notice that if it adds a penny to the deficit, they won't be for it. Anyway, so even tax cutting is going to be hard for them. So they're not doing this. Um, they're not doing well. And, and, and you take, it's even more dangerous than that because now that they control all of government, um, you get, like Mark Levin, the famous conservative radio talk show host, has said a couple years ago in a show, um, when Boehner, when, right before Boehner was forced out as Speaker of the House, that, um, this, so this, this was after 2014 when uh, Republicans had also taken control of the Senate. And he was complaining that Republicans are in Congress are voting for things like, as he put it, continuing resolutions, increases in the debt limit, and yeah, there was a third thing, an, another fiscal, a budget bill. 
Well, what he was describing were the only must-do pieces of legislation that any Congress faces. And to say this goes to the overpromising that they shouldn't, that Republicans shouldn't be voting for those things, is to say, all right, we shut, we might as well shut down the government and default. And so, when faced with those forces, it makes it so hard. There would have been, there is going to be by December eighth a crisis because that's when the CR expires. And it'll be shortly after it'll, they can push off. The, the debt limit won't be a problem until into the new year. But um, the Republican Party, as a result of these forces, is not a governing party. And Republicans will tell you that. I'm sure you hear that, right, Donna, on the set. All the, and you too, Karen. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's terrible. What was your first uh, political beat? Very, very first? Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, that was in Abilene, Texas, and it was a wet-dry election when I didn't even know what the terms wet-dry meant. But uh, even though I'd gone to graduate school in um, Evanston, Illinois, I was, which was the home of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, I thought wet-dry elections were a thing. You know, it died in the 20s with the end of Prohibition. Prohibition. But no, I was a 23-year-old woman, Irish Catholic, liked my beer. And I moved to Abilene, Texas, where there was. So we had a wet, dry election. And I go, so my first story actually was going, showing up at, for what they said would be the routine canvassing of this vote, because the wets had won. The Southern Baptist dries had lost. And I'm very happy about that. And um, not to be, show my bias coming to the story, but I show up at the commissioner's court. And they told me to be pro forma. I had written the story, uh, left it with them, and we had, it was an afternoon paper, so the deadline was like 12.30 p.m., long before the Internet. And um, so I get to commissioner's court, opens at noon. This judge, the chief commissioner, says he has decided there was an irregularity in precinct box 9, I remember to this day, and which overturned the results of the election. <laughs> he was, as we say, in the pocket of the dries. And so for the next nine months... It was on appeal. It became a national story. The networks came in like they, too, didn't know that there were still places that were, were dry. But I almost wanted to cry, and I had to rush to a phone with my dime at the time and call and say, you know, hold the presses, you know, and dictate a new lead and the top of a new story that was completely the opposite of what I had left them with. So that was my first wow. longer answer than you expected. But And what was your first beat in D.C.? Uh, Congress. I worked for Congressional Quarterly. And uh, and 33 years ago, and then I went to the Wall Street Journal, and then to the New York Times. And have could you see when you started reporting in D.C. Could you see some of these trends in conservative media in the Republican Party? Were there hints of this? Not immediately, because because the forces that unleashed this had not, were not on the horizon. Well, they were on the horizon, but beyond where I could see the first force. The first event was the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine, I would argue, at, in 1987 at the end of the Reagan administration, which made it possible that the following year, 1988, Rush Limbaugh started his show. And he was able to go national and say whatever he wanted and have no one claim that they wanted equal time. And in at the same time that was happening, it may seem like a small thing, but it was a big factor at the time there was a national like 
1-800 number so he could get call in. He could have, you know, audience, uh, which made him especially popular and other people modeled themselves after him. The second thing, of course, was the development of the Internet, which made it possible for so many people to open their, um, to go online and be be publishers. And of course, I'm leaving out 1996, Roger Ailes founds Fox News. So cable, you know, end of the fairness doctrine, national call-in uh, numbers, um, uh, cable, and um, internet. When did you first start to see it really impacting elected officials, when elected officials were more concerned about conservative media than they were about constituents or mainstream media? Easily, like 19, the 1994 midterm elections, when um, Republicans for the first time in 40 years won control, total control of Congress. And throughout that election year, there had been, let there were, the, the imitators of Rush Limbaugh had come, come into being, and Rush Limbaugh himself was, like I had said at the outset, was so prominent in helping them to win that they made him an honorary member, which I, sh I want to add as an aside, that shows you a real difference between now and then, which is that conservative media was in cahoots with the Republican leadership. Now we see they've gone completely opposite. Um, so that was it, and it was in, you know, and then when the Republicans, uh, on their first day, uh, 19, January 1995, John Boehner, again, ironically, considering what a role conservative media would have in pushing him out 20 years later, forcing him to resign, um, he, he was a junior leader, member of the leadership, House Republican leadership, and he created what they called Radio Row, which is um, which they had all these conservative talk show hosts come in and just set up in the halls of Congress. And you should have seen the members of Congress, the Republican members. They, act, they were so starstruck. These conservative talk radio people were such had become such celebrities in their districts or nation, nationwide that they were like they were like the star they they were usually they they would in their lives it was the other way around where people were like impressed by a member of congress no it was the other way around hmm. i have uh, one more question then i'll open up to questions from the audience so get your questions ready uh, but i did want to ask you about about race in conservative media that uh you know one of the one of the concerns critiques of breitbart and of um and of you know especially online conservative media is the way it handles race and we saw uh whether you know with president trump the way he uh, mm -hmm. speaks about immigrants and uh you know judge curiel uh, to uh, the way he responded to uh, the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville. W how do you understand and make sense of the role race plays in conservative media and how that might have changed over the time you've been watching it? Um, I haven't seen that it's changed a lot. It's, all, it's been an undercurrent, not least because the most popular uh, and most numerous outlets for talk radio are throughout the South um, and rural areas, uh, conservative rural areas. This, there's a history of this, though, where conservative media in its prior pre-internet uh, manifestation um, 
and post-World War II mainly was there was a great undercurrent of racism through the civil rights era was um, it was a very controversial thing that a lot of these uh, and, and it um, uh, was sort of used to tar conservative media generally but they were um, voices for segregation and states rights and and there was a lot of I think it it helped as I recall it helped um, to uh, in a different world then where um, it wasn't considered mainstream or acceptable to talk like that more broadly those it, it was used against them but um, and I think it kept down uh, conservative media it, it and um, Buckley William F Buckley even though he himself came into for criticism about his own views on race and racial justice was um, objected that people were using the race against uh, or, or like tarring all of them including him with a brush that more was for limited to these southern outlets now it's you know it's more I can't believe I'm saying this but it's become more acceptable in in civil discourse uh, civil civic to to for people to express views about race um, than it ever was in virtually in my lifetime and um, so that's being reflected in some of conservative media and we're like we're Breitbart Breitbart has I forget what they call it but they have a sub a subhead they've had it for years about um, black crime or something like that does anybody know I, I've forgotten what it is but it's uh, it's just like and the man who had his, that publication was a senior strategist in the White House just recently and still talks to him as recently as yesterday. You know, rereading your paper, one of the things you spent some time on in the paper is uh, Sandra uh, uh, Fluke. Fluke, Fluke, Sandra Fluke. and Which seems uh, probably nobody remembers that anymore. I had totally forgotten that yeah. the size and scope of that, of that controversy with Rush Limbaugh. And it almost seemed quaint in the face of our current president. Yeah. And I just wonder, too, in addition to the the threads about race in conservative media, um, how you know how, how how Rush Limbaugh recovered from that? Well, initially, well, recover to say or he, he wasn't like thrown on his. Um, well, advertisers were yes. dropping him. It and was, was some 2012, impact. for anyone who doesn't remember. And it was the issue was uh, it was an outgrowth of Obamacare and whether the government should be requiring um, insurers, not just for in individual policies, but for policy, employer-provided policies as well, to provide um, coverage of contraception and contraceptive um, services as a preventive service, as, a, as one of 10 um, must- provide services. So Sandra Fluke had asked to testify before the House on a hearing about this and testify in favor uh, of this mandate for contraceptive coverage, and the House Republicans refused, and so she became a bit of a cause celeb. And Limbaugh really milked this, and he called her a slut and a prostitute on the air and said, she's having so much sex, it's amazing she can still walk. Well, this caused... Uh, 
uh, justifiably cause of fear. And um, and at the time, so three years later when I'm writing my paper, I was finding when I was interviewing industry consultants that this was still hurting. This was still a factor that had hurt conservative talk radio, that um, uh, employers, there was a lot of pressure then for um, advertisers to drop their advertising from uh, Rush and others as well. And so um, that has been considered a factor. Of course, I haven't updated it two years later, but as of twenty, as of mid-2015, as of May 2015, it was a radio industry, two consultants I had talked to both separately said that this had been um, and I was actually happy to hear that, that it had really hurt their advertising and made them a little more cautious. But I think that's, I think if I did the interview or the research now, I'd find, um, you know, their, their advertising is probably stabilized. But, but, they're, but they're hurting in any case. And a lot of the money is coming from individual rich people, both on the local levels and the big levels like the Mercers or the, um, Cokes or people like that. Steve Dace, the man I featured in Des Moines, he has um, a sugar daddy he wouldn't um, identify to me, but I found out who it was. And it was a lo very rich local man in Des Moines who had talked him into leaving the mainstream radio station there, WHO, which is very big, very well known, um, and got him to leave and start his own syndicated uh, radio show and backed him up financially. And that is happening, I'm finding. You know, Charlie Sykes and other people like that, they have, uh, they were getting money on the side from very conservative people who saw this as a good way to get their views out there. Do we have any questions from the audience? I can keep going. I have more. All right. No questions I can see, so I'll keep. Oh, <laughs> well, Tyler. I'm Tyler Bridges. I'm a Sean Seacole. No, you are. Um, <laughs> um, you, you've been critical of Rush Limbaugh and mm -hmm. overall the conservative media here today. What would you say if somebody said to you, you're just expressing the views of liberal bias? I would say that like that I'm expressing the views of all the Republicans that I interviewed and and no, I mean, uh, and that was what I was afraid of in doing my paper, but um, I would like nothing more for there to be, uh, I used to read, I Weekly Standard and before that, Human Events. Um, I would I read those and to know what real intellectual conservatism was about. And now this isn't intellectual conservatism. It's not even conservatism in many cases. And so I was very cognizant of that. I mean, this was a danger. I was scared the entire four or five months I was here, how my paper would come out and how it would be perceived. And but I was so, but, well, I can't say the whole four or five months, because once I started getting these interviews under my belt, I was, I felt good about it. What, what, if it's not conservatism, what would you call it? Well, it's a right-wing populism. It's a knee-jerk populism. Um, and, and if I could, can I ask you, I mean, you have spent, you spend all your time, are there, what, do you think I'm wrong? Or do you think, or what are the voices of the um, conservative media like where you've been writing about for years? Well, so I'm a reporter in Louisiana, I cover Louisiana politics, and I'm very, very mindful of the criticism that, that you face when mm -hmm. you write about people. I get criticized in Louisiana as being too, uh, critical of the Republicans and so that liberal bias. Right. I had this question of Bob Schieffer the other day when he appeared before us. How do you do your job and and 
call out these people when you need to call them out, just as you do with Democrats, and not run into that by the people that are facing them, that you're hey, you're just another liberal reporter. Mm-hmm. No, it's hard. It's I I don't know how I would to. Uh, what I could have done different, and I don't apologize. I, I'm really proud of my paper, and um, and I think Republicans are increasingly know that it's true. And Char- even Charlie Sykes uh, speaks to it now. Um, it is it is not a good thing for. The, and the, the other challenge I had in the paper that goes to your question is um, answering the inevitably people are going to say, well, it's the same on the left. It's not the same on the left. Um, and there are reasons for that, and I won't go into. But it's uh, it. There are other forces um, pressuring people on the Democrats to be more left leaning. We know that, but con- but this closed conservative uh, circle of information is not one of them. Yeah, if I could jump in, just if, if anybody hasn't read the report by the Berkman Institute that talks about how closed much more the right is than the left is, and how much more sort of powerful this. This, this ecosystem is uh, on the right than on the left. Did that just come out recently? This is in August. in August, and we we had Yokai Benkler here um, in the spring talking about it. But it, it you know, you you actually cite some of that research in your paper, Jackie, which is that, I just don't know it. Uh, <laughs> well, you, okay. which is that the that um, the more conservative you are, the more likely that you only conserve consume conservative media. Whereas the more liberal you are, you're still likely to consume a broader, right. uh, diverse range of media. And I benefited from the work of the Pew Research uh, Organization yeah. because they had done a year-long study of, of Americans' media consumption habits as part of their series on trying to explain the political polarization in this country. And it's, it was really good. And I hope they update it. But I said that to somebody at Pew recently, and they said, well, it takes money. Uh, Richard? Yeah. So I really appreciate what you had to say, Jackie. I was just going to ask you to push back a little further, and maybe not Perry ask a reporter to do it because reporters do the first draft. But I'm 70, and I was born in 1946 when Richard Nixon and Joseph McCarthy were both elected to the Congress, and it's impossible for me to describe that kind of republicanism as a kind of moderate pre-Reagan or pre-radical right republicanism, a tendency toward what any, well, let me put it differently, a strong radical tendency in the Republican Party has been present in that party for a long, long Absolutely. time. Absolutely. I think that keeping that in mind is really important, particularly for younger generation of Americans who somehow see this as a novelty or related right. to something that has happened recently in, in American life. I mean, I grew up in Southern California in the 1950s with Birchers, and my hometown voted for Goldwater in 1964. And none of this that so excites the right. 138 liberals as if the Huns had shown up. Right. But was right. there conservative that's, media? That's well, the, the conservative media was the mainstream media. 80% of American newspapers from the 1940s to the 1970s always endorsed the Republican candidate. Yeah, you've, you don't want to talk about fringe right. media. You've touched on a real very few myth. exceptions where there are national print media that could be talked about as left or even progressive. And the New Republic and the nation were there, but they were hardly major mainstream forces. Henry uh, Henry Luce and the time people were considered progressive by the standards of a lot of stuff. You look mm-hmm. at the Saturday Evening Post or Book or Collier's coverage of 
the politics of the 1950s and the way that uh, wrote, uh, not wrote, but Stevenson was treated versus the rapturous way in which Joe McCarthy in right. the early days was treated. It's just nonsense to talk about this as a novel. And then there were fringe media. There was Father Coughlin in the 30s. 30s. You had Klan media of various kinds. The Klan was among the very earliest users of broadcast radio in the 1920s. <clears throat> I mean, the far right has always been technologically innovative. Right. Um, and so I think that from my vantage point, I would just encourage more of a discussion that shows continuity rather than right. continuity or novelty. And then try to think in the context of continuity, well, how to address this as an issue of a recurrent of American well, and in my paper, no, to, to, to buttress your point, in my paper I uh, cited how in 1961 it would, things were so bad in terms from some co commentator on the right that both John F. Kennedy and Dwight Eisenhower, who had just left the presidency, were moved to condemn what they saw as the devices, divisive extremist talk of self-styled super patriots. Sound familiar? Uh, the liberal magazine in the, Na the nation in 1964 drew wide notice for an article on conservative radio that it entitled Hate Clubs of the Air. That was 1964. And with the civil rights era, liberal and mainstream media pointed out the overtly racist programming of some conservative broadcasters, mainly in the South, but it was the extremism of the conspiracy-minded John Birch Society that by 1965 provoked even some within conservative media to speak out. Buckley and the National Review led a break from the Birchites despite the predictable loss of conservative subscribers and advertisers um, for fear that well-educated, responsible intellectuals like themselves would be tarred by association with what Buckley called the kooks. You can push even further back to the Second World War when Roosevelt, after being elected for a third time in the middle of the war, secretly reached out to Wendell Wilkie, whom he had beaten in 1940, and encouraged Wilkie to think about the two of them leaving their respective parties and forming a liberal party, because he was so, he Roosevelt was so disgusted by the conservative reactionaries both within the Democratic right. and the Republican Party. Right. That's at the height of the war right. in the 1940s, which raises the question for I, I want you to start if I may uh, what is what is different now about it if anything about conservative media and its audience well, I, I would add I, I, I was gonna ask you could, could uh, you know Buckley like excluding the Birchers or leading like a purge of the Birchers from the party could you even do that today well no and that I that's why I brought that up in, in the papers where I touched. There is no self-policing today, nor would it be possible. Uh, Charlie Sykes is sort of trying that for his, from his own, you know, in his own individual way. But there's no, you know, dominant figure like a William F. Buckley. And with the Internet, you know, I don't know that there ever could be. And so, um, you know, when Limbaugh said what he did about Sandra Fluke and said, you know, well, I won't repeat the phrase again because I'm probably still red, but um, there was some talk then about, you know, policing, you know, that they, but, you know, it advertised, it, able to do it a little bit initially through advertisers, but. To change the topic a little bit, what what is it like covering this White House? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, what can, what can you say? I mean, it's, it is truly unlike anything any of us have ever experienced. Um, 
in our lifetimes and if we could bring back the dead they could say the same thing and um i uh I thought I had left journalism, daily journalism at the end of 2016 when I left the New York Times and I uh, was looking at other things and um, I ended up getting a couple journalism overtures and I decided to go back in part because I just thought in my own way that I knew that a lot of the reporters covering Trump are young. They'd never covered any other presidential campaign nor any other White House and so I thought and I so I got this offer from the LA Times to be a White House editor and they had three young reporters who are fit the description I just said and I thought I've covered three presidents I covered Washington 33 years I've seen this these evolutions I've seen trends I've and I am a student of history so I thought people like me should be in the game and so I went I took the job and um but that said, it's some. There are some days. I had a discussion with maybe it was you, Nancy, or um, maybe you. That, that was like some day. You just think you need. It's PTSD. You know, you wake up. My phone is my alarm, and when I it goes off, and I often Trump gets up before me, and I see <laughs> I have this alert that I've already got his tweets there on my phone, and I'm like, God no. And um, so it's just. It, the constant negativism is wearing, and the con and it's just do, do I don't know other do, I I try not to, I would it's it's unlike anything. Well, it, I mean, it seems like there's a challenge, right? That the president's words, the president of the United States, his words are supposed to have some power, mm -hmm. some import, and yet he also kind of uses the tweets to manipulate the news cycle in ways that have no bearing whatsoever on the reality sometimes. Right. And so that's like, I think, a real dilemma for covering the president. Yeah. I mean, we have this debate, and I'm sure you all have an opinion on it, as to whether we should be covering his tweets like we do. I fall in the camp of saying, yes, we should. I mean, this is a unique window into the mindset of the president of the United States. And whatever he says, you know, you could, it's like any news that comes across, or any developments, information that comes across your desk. You have to be, you have to um, decide how and to play it, whether to play it. But his tweets, I tell my, the few reporters I have, do not become inured to him. Do not become inured to his tweets or anything else about him because if we do, we are lowering the bar. We have got to maintain the same high bar for him that we maintain for every other president, no matter how many times he distracts us with. I mean, it's become sort of a, a, laugh, a truism of Washington for people to stand there and say, was it just Monday that he, that, you know, he picked the outrage? I can't, I'm, I can't even keep them straight, but, you know, that... Um, and <laughs> was it just yesterday it, it just, that he... Do you know and, covering him? You're doing exactly what he wants you to do? I mean, that you're being used, played like a violin. That's the argument. That's the, That's the argument. On the other hand, his the most recent poll I've seen is CNN's 37% approval rating, 57% negative. Is that what he wants? I mean, he, the reason that is his the coverage of the uh, support for his the job he performed on the hurricanes has gone in the course of a month from 64% support to 44%. Uh, so the news reporting on him is having an impact. Jackie, let me just point out, the Republican Party reported that 
he didn't even win a majority of the votes in the Republican primaries, let alone win the majority of votes in the general. It's a peculiarity of the American electoral system that someone can win the presidency not meeting either of those conditions right. in the rule. The thing that I keep focusing on is that within the Republican Party, there was a furor about Donald Trump. And at the beginning of that cycle, there weren't, there weren't Republicans who actually thought that Donald Trump had a chance. It was just a brand-boosting exercise by him. By November, 80% of Republicans came back to the Republican Party and chose to vote for Trump. So I don't actually worry about him, and he shouldn't worry about his relatively low numbers <coughs> well, right it, now, because all throughout last summer and fall, they're going, oh my God, we're not, he's got awful, we've got to sabotage him, we've got to somehow conspire to right. derail him at the convention, we've got to ruin him in the fall, and then 80% of the party comes roaring back into the Republican column on that first Tuesday in November. So I, yeah. I wouldn't put too much hope in you know, his negatives right now as a deterrent to his reelection. Especially, especially if the left divides and you have a Democratic candidate, yeah. say, and a third-party candidate. Well, the Democratic Party dividing, that's not What uh, it's kind of curious to me that in the in the nine months or so he's been president, he hasn't uh, appeared on talk radio. Today he's doing, if he hasn't done it already, on talk radio for the first time, they're doing a, a radio row, uh, which I haven't heard that phrase since 1995. And they're doing it to push his tax, I don't even want to call it, it's not a bill, I don't even want to call it a plan, his tax idea, tax yeah. proposal, yeah. Um, and so he is on, uh, he's doing some interviews with some uh, talk radio people that have been brought in and so are some of his cabinet members like Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and uh, National Economic Advisor um, Gary Cohen so which is interesting but but I think this goes to some someone among you noted he's a t he's a product of TV I'm not sure he's ever really catered to or listened to talk radio that's true I stand corrected another great force of conservative intellectualism. <laughs> Donna? So, Jackie, you mentioned that uh, President Trump is a creation, uh, a direct creation of the Mastiff uh, that was uh, built by conservative media. And so my question is, you know, uh, I, I start visualizing Popeye. You know, Popeye the Sailor Man. Oh, yes. Popeye would eat spinach and then grow stronger. But what feeds this particular monster? Is it our polarization? Is it our partisanship? Or is it wedge issues like gays, guns, immigration, racial issues? I noticed yesterday that the president, and I agree with you about the PTSD factor, um, but yesterday the president started saying, oh, I'm, 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 I'm going to get to welfare soon. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Yeah. So what feeds this particular monster? And what can we do as citizens to not uh, not feed into it? Well, I think it, the factors you mentioned are, are the ones that are behind it. And he's, you know, when he sees himself getting, you know, he fails on health care. Uh, he's got these other controversies. He's, you know, unraveled DACA and yet he recognizes and says he wants to preserve it somehow. So he's got these things that are controversial and so suddenly he's coming out with, a, you know, 
provoking yet again this whole controversy over the flag in the NFL and now throwing in welfare. And um, he hits these issues every time he gets in trouble just to keep his base going. And um, it's just remarkable to me. It's like so much about him just defies everything we thought we knew about politics, which is, you know, you win an election and you try to expand your base. He's shown no interest whatsoever. And I'm, you know, I don't, don't even need to say more because I feel like I'm restating what I'm, uh, everyone else has said. But the- and I, I apologize. I didn't read your paper, but I will make it part of my must read unless Tyler <laughs> invites me out again tonight, in which case I won't have any time to read. <laughs> <laughs> but I notice he's dressed up today, so we must be going somewhere. <laughs> you know. Uh, so what? let's let's talk about the. You know, you mentioned Southern Baptists. I'm Catholic also, Irish Catholic, so we, we might be related. I think so. <laughs> Daughters of a different mother. Absolutely, but I, I would have been with you on the beer. <laughs> uh, but we, we didn't talk about the, the so-called Christian uh, evangel- evangelical movement, the Jerry Falwells of the world, who also, right around the time, Rush Limbaugh, uh, Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, I mean, all of these forces now seem aligned in such a way that I never thought they could ever come together. No, I... Given the vulgarity of some of the things that the president has said. Right, right. And yet they embrace him as if he is, you know, the second coming of... Right. That is one thing I can't... I, I can't explain. One of the things, um, when I was looking, reading my paper for uh, seeing how much it um, stood the test of time, there's a part in there where I talk about how the um, conservative media, and especially going to the religious right, would be, uh, uh, this would be true of them in spades, is that you, um, to not give anybody a pass, uh, no matter how, for instance, I Jeb Bush was a far more conservative governor in Florida than Ronald Reagan ever was in California. But when people forget conservative media was very suspicious of Reagan when he ran for election and was and were quick to call him on the carpet in during his presidency for thing when they thought he was not being true to their program that said they gave him a pass because he was they felt like he he made them feel like he was one of them and he was charismatic and um so it was he it was never a crisis of uh, his relation in a relationship he had with them. Then you come to Je- a person by 20 years later, 30 years later, it's not like that anymore. And Jeb Bush, who was very conservative, and others would not get a pass for the sole issue of immigration. The religious right was also opposed to a comprehensive immigration solution. Now, then so in my paper, I alluded to that, and I quoted some Republicans saying they won't give anyone a pass. Well, clearly, they've given Trump a pass. And I really can't answer myself all the reasons why. Um, it would seem like the excess Hollywood video alone <laughs> would have been the you know the fatal knife in the coffin, so to speak. I mean, the idea that this guy... With his history, I, I, I don't know. That, 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 it's a mystery. Gorsuch is a Supreme Court justice. That's true. It's well. I think it comes. You got to get really active in the right. evangelical white community in a kind of a 
hellacious way to get called down. I mean, Jim Jim Baker got Jim Baker got himself reborn again. I mean, the, there are plenty of evangelical ministers. That's you know, there's there's a line in what is it Sinclair Lewis's Elmer Gantry where he talks about going behind the altar and ramming the fear of God into the choir ministers. That's true. <laughs> Uh, wow. Well, I'm quoting a Nobel Prize winner in literature, so don't go out. Well, name, I'm Philip DeSenter. I wanted to ask you a question about Hillary Clinton. So, um, and the Russian story. As as a re as a reporter, do you feel like the um, the coverage of WikiLeaks, the coverage of the FBI investigation, uh, did the media do anything wrong there? Wow, so you've gotten far afield from conservative media to all the way over to the New York Times. <laughs> um, you know, we can always fault the coverage. I, you know, I think there, if, I don't think the coverage of her was, I don't fault it big time necessarily. Was there too much, uh, in retrospect, you can too much on the email servers and all that. It was. It, uh, Let me ask you a different question. She, do, didn't, do, she do, didn't give enough of a message to offset that. I'm not sure she could, but I do think people simply didn't think they didn't. I don't think um, it's not so much how we covered Hillary it's as how we covered Trump. And I don't think Trump was taken seriously enough to get the coverage. Although everything we know about him came out during that campaign, um, pretty much, except for, of course, the Russia things, and we still don't know. Do you think? Uh, how do you see? How do you see mainstream media coverage and conservative media coverage changing when we're looking at 2020? Do you think there's going to be any substantial changes in 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 either the conservative or the mainstream media as to how these candidates and these issues get covered? Yes, but I can't predict what that is. Like uh, uh, 2012, for instance, we didn't know. Uh, Twitter was only then becoming uh, coming on the horizon. The, it's been in my lifetime, and we've come to it seems so odd now, but the, the, the use of the Internet. And so I think technology is continually changing, so that will change how things are done. And I... Um, I think there's going. That's why we need to do a lot. And you need the paper you gave me today that I can't wait to read about fake news. I mean, there's got to be a very there's. We've got to figure out a way to at least alleviate um, the distribution of fake of what is truly fake news, as opposed to what Donald Trump thinks of as fake news. Uh, because I, that's the main thing I fear for 2012 or 20, 2018. I fear it for next year's midterms. I fear it already. It's already happening. On that warm, optimistic note, <laughs> I want to thank you all for coming. Let's give Jackie a round of applause. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.